0: Uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. For those of you who have not been a part of our uh, congregation in the past, maybe you're a visitor or maybe you've just missed a couple weeks and hadn't been here, we are studying the life of Jesus Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. My intentions, my hope is that if the Lord wills, that in the next few years we will get through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the first two chapters of Acts and learn all about the chronological life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It just so happens through his providence and through uh, the fact that we're celebrating Christmas and the fact that I've only been here as your pastor for 10 weeks, that in the life of Jesus Christ, we're still talking about his birth, which is really cool. It's really timely. Uh, And so we need to remember as we celebrate these holidays, as we celebrate... Uh, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then it's more than just tinsels and trees, and it's more than just carols and and good food, and all of those things are wonderful things. There's nothing in the world wrong with those things. But we need to make sure that we do not leave, lose sight of why we are here and who we are worshiping. Amen? And so, uh, in our story, in the past few weeks, we've seen that uh, John the Baptist was announced to be born, that Zachariah and Elizabeth are happy, that a barren family is going to now have a son. We've seen that Mary has been told by the angel Gabriel that she will give birth to a son. His name will be called Jesus. And so last week, our the title of our sermon was The Stage is Set or Setting the Stage. And so now almost, almost everything is in place for us to see Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But before we do that, uh, um, we do need to take a look at a couple more things. And so what I want to look at uh, first this morning in that Matthew uh, uh, 18-25 passage is these final preparations. We need to understand that we have a husband who now has a wife who he has never known who is pregnant. And so God is going to have to help Joseph to understand. Let's look at that passage together. This is uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So we'll look at this passage as one piece, and then we'll go to the Luke passage afterwards. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was to be found with holy child, uh, child by the Holy Spirit And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, wanting uh, not to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people uh, from their sins. Now all of this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her as a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So let's look at this passage together, this, this uh, section of scripture together, and notice a few things. In Matthew 1.18, it says that uh, the birth of Jesus takes place as follows. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, are writing to us and allowing us to know how these things follow, how things fell out. The plan of God, as prophesied from the very beginning, was now being fulfilled. And Matthew is making sure that we understand that this uh, birth is a fulfillment of the promises of God. It says that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. The king. If you notice that word king there is spelt with a little letter, is it not? Right? That's because he is the king of an earthly kingdom, and Jesus is the king of the eternal kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a distinction there. Uh, Herod, in all of his uh, regal apparel, with his crown and his throne, and all of the expanse of land that he is in control of, that he is the king of is nothing compared to the kingdom that this little baby has. Nothing compared to him. And this king sups in fine dining halls and sleeps in a fancy bed. Our king is going to be born in a cattle stall. And so we see that it says that he was betrothed. In verse 18 it says uh, that... before they came together, Mary was found to be with a child. This is that Matthew one eighteen passage. Uh, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. So we spoke about this a little bit last week. The betrothal uh, period for the Jewish uh, people uh, was very much like an engagement uh, for us in our day. A uh, man loves a woman. He goes and he spends way too much money and buys a fancy ring and he gets down on his knee very nervously and says, will you be mine, right? And he's uh, so that ring is supposed to be a symbol of his love and his care and his desire to have her. And so he gets on his knee and he says, will you be mine? And so we see in this passage that Joseph, probably through the arrangement of family, is now engaged to this young lady to be married. And what would have taken place is, is that Joseph's family would have given Mary's family a bunch of money. And the same way that we buy, go and buy a diamond ring, they would give a dowry. They would give some money to the family because this family is going to lose a daughter who could serve in that family and be very profitable for that family. And so now they're betrothed. And the way that the ceremony worked at that time was after this initial I do. the man and the woman would separate for an entire year or a certain amount of set time. And during this separation, the husband would go and prepare a home for his bride. And at the end of that, he would come back and he would claim his wife in a wedding ceremony and then he would take her into his home and consummate the marriage and then they would be husband and wife. But in the Jewish eyes, at the point of the betrothal, They are actually husband and wife. It would actually require a divorce, even from the betrothal, for them to be separated. And so it says that before they came together, Mary was found to be with child. Now, this is a problem, is it not? Right? Mary has gone to stay with her cousin Elizabeth out in the country. And when she comes back home, word gets back to Joseph that Mary has a baby. how many times has this happened in life? Well, lots of times, right? Lots of times folks have come back and said, I got a baby. And uh, matter of fact, we live in a military town, and I can tell you there's some very ugly scenes out there of people coming back home and someone having a baby. It's an ugly mess. And there's a lot of explaining to do when it comes to a situation like that, right? And I would say that more often than not, there's not very much forgiveness going on in those situations, is there? But this is a special situation. Mary is found to be with child. Now, I want to quickly remind you of a Catholic teaching called the Immaculate Conception. Have any of y'all ever heard that before, the Immaculate Conception? All right, so the Roman Catholic Church in the year uh, 1854, a guy named Pope Pius IX declared the Immaculate Conception to be Catholic dogma. Well, the problem is, is that and they, they had been teaching it for, for hundreds of years, they had been teaching it, but it wasn't until the 1850s that a pope came out and said, this is the truth, and if you don't confess it and believe it, uh, you're anathema, you're, you're damned. And when we think as Protestants, we think of the Immaculate Conception, we actually think that it was the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and placing Jesus in the womb, right? That would be an Immaculate Conception, would it not? Well, that is what we believe as Protestants, that the Holy Spirit uh, brooded over the, the womb of Mary and Jesus was placed inside the womb and she conceived a son. But the Catholic view of the Immaculate Conception is that Mary was born without original sin. We are not taught that often in the Protestant churches that that is what the Catholic Church is actually professing. That Mary was sinless. Therefore, when God, the Father, had a relation with her, that son could be conceived sinless. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible is not teaching us that immaculate conception in the sense that Mary was sinless. We do know that Mary was righteous, and we'll see that in just a second. But Mary was not sinless. Mary was a daughter of Eve. Right, and the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of their glory of God. Matter of fact, if you remember in the in her magnificent her praise to God, she th- said, "Thanks be to God, my Savior." Yes. Do you remember when she said that in her her in the uh, magnificent her praise to God? She said, "Praise be to God, my Savior." Well, if she was sinless, if she was not guilty of original sin, she had no need of a Savior. Jesus came to save us from our sins. So this is not an immaculate conception in the Roman sense. This is a miraculous conception in the sense that God said, let there be light. Remember last time we were together, we talked about how There was a parallel between when God created the heavens and the earth. It said the spirit of God hovered over the chaos. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God created everything out of chaos. Well, there's a direct parallel between that passage in the Old Testament and the passage that tells us that the spirit of God hovered over Mary. God said, let there be light. There was a miraculous conception. And so the reality is is that even though this is a miraculous conception, Joseph's not going to be able to grasp this. And I want us to think about that this morning. Think about Joseph. Think about what he was going through. And think about how real this dream was that he had where an angel spoke to him and told him who Mary was actually pregnant with. Like, think about how impactful this dream had to be to convince him that his wife was carrying the Son of God. It had to be a powerful thing. See, so let's look at that in verse 19. It says that Joseph, her husband, so he, he's had this dream and the angel has told her, uh, told him that she is pregnant with the son of God. And it said, Joseph, her husband being a what? Righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, and it said Joseph, being a righteous man, was going to put her away secretly. Now, I want to talk about this term righteous, because we have been told in the past few weeks that not only was Joseph righteous, but... Zachariah and Elizabeth were righteous. And we find out that Mary found favor with God. And the only people that find favor with God are the righteous. Well, what do I mean by that? The reality is that Zachariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph, just like you and I, are all sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, you and I can both be uh, sinners... And And I want to overemphasize this fact this morning. I want you to think about this because as we're thinking about the gift of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we need to understand that he has shared his righteousness with us. He came and lived a life that you and I could not according to the perfect will of his father. And then he went and willfully hung on a cross and said, Father, you take their unrighteousness and pour the condemnation and the judgment they deserve on me. And when they turn to me, not only will I take away their unrighteousness, but I will share my righteousness with them. You see? And so if you're in this room today and you truly have repented of your sins, you truly have turned away from sin and self, you have turned to the work of Jesus Christ, and He has given you a new heart, then what that means is, is that you are now righteous in the sight of God. He has paid for how many of your sins? All of them. And not only did he pay for all of your sins, but he shared his righteousness with you. And if you are in this room this morning and you have received that gift of eternal life, I want you to know that when the Father looks down from heaven on you this morning, he does not see your unrighteousness. He sees you covered in the righteousness of his Son and your righteousness is not dependent on how many times you read the Bible and how many times you pray a day and how much you put in the offering plate when it came by. That is not what your righteousness is based on. So many people, the uh, works-based religions of the world and most of modern Christianity believe that our righteousness is something like the charge meter on my cell phone. Oh, My batteries are getting low, I better go to church. Oh, my batteries are getting low, I better pray. And oh man, I put a lot of money in the offering plate today so that made my charge go up 20%. And we think about the fact that our standing with God is based upon what we do. Now what we do is very important. And if you have a charged battery, your phone will work. But you don't get charged by what you do You get charged by what he has done and what he is doing in you through his word and his spirit. And so, so often we think that our religion is like that charge meter and that the more I pray, the more Christian I am. And the nicer the clothes I wear when I come to church, the more of a Christian I am. And the more that I pray and the more that I read my Bible and the more big words that I can throw over your head and make you think I know something, the more righteous I am. But the reality is, is God is looking down on his children this morning and he sees us clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Yes. And because of that, there is now no condemnation to those who are in him. But I say this in love. If you are here today and you have never turned from sin itself, then he is staring directly at your unrighteousness. Amen. And you are the, under the condemnation and the wrath of a just and a holy God who says repent and believe the gospel. Turn from sin and self and trust my son. And not only will I take away your sin, but I will share my goodness with you. And that gift is for anyone who will receive it. The offer is made to all. The gift is for all who receive him. And so it's a wonderful thing to think about. But Joseph is a righteous guy. And... If we are children of God and if our meter is charged with the love and the righteousness of Christ, then we're going to act like he does. Y'all remember the story of the uh, pricope adultery, the woman caught in the act of adultery. What did Jesus say? The one of you without sin, you cast the first stone at her. And the truth of the matter is Joseph could have put Mary on blast. He could have thrown her out in the street and said... This unclean woman doesn't deserve to be my wife. But one of the truest indications that you are righteous is your willingness to share the forgiveness that God has given to you with others. That is one of the clearest indications that you truly know Christ. When you are willing to share the forgiveness that was given to you with those around you. And so now when you go back and you read all of these stories in the Bible and you see where Moses was righteous or Abraham was righteous, they're not righteous in their own sense. They did walk according to the way of God, but they all fell. They all mess up. But their righteousness was based on their trust in God and his word. Their righteousness was based on the fact that they turned away from themselves and turned to what God had promised he would do for them or turned to what God has done for them. Abraham and Joseph didn't know exactly what Jesus was going to look like when he come, but they knew he was coming. And they were saved based on their faith of a promise that God had made to them. And I want you to watch what's happening right here. He did not want to send her away. He was going to send her away secretly. So Joseph is righteous, not sinless, but he's righteous. How do I know he's not sinless? Because he's not with us today. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is what? Death. And so Joseph was not sinless, but he was righteous. And so because he's a child of God, God made sure that he got the word. God made sure that he was assured through God's promises of what was happening. And so the same thing is applying to every one of us in this room this morning. The word of God came to Joseph, and look what it says in verse, uh, let me find it. Verse 24, Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Joseph heard the word of God and responded in obedience. What did Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. If you are a child of God, you will walk with him in obedience. Right? It's not charged in your meter, but it's showing you that your meter is charged. So, another indication that you truly are a, a child of God is a love for hearing his word and a willingness to obey it. So, Two of the greatest indications that you have a new heart, that you are a child of God, is one, your willingness to share the forgiveness that God has given you with those around you. And that means some of your worst enemies. It's easy to forgive a friend. It's easy to forgive a family member. But what about those who really hurt you? And Jesus, with his dying breath, said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The very ones that were nailing him to the tree, he said, God, forgive them. So the greatest indication that we know him is, number one, we're willing to hear his word. We love his word, and we're willing to stand up and follow him. And number two, our willingness uh, to share his forgiveness that he has given us with those around us. Joseph is righteous, he doesn't want to disgrace her, he's going to send her away secretly, so an angel speaks to him in a dream and gives him God's word. He calls him Joseph, son of David, that's important, we've talked about this in the past, he has to come from the tribe of Judah and he has to come from the line of David. In order to be qualified as the king, he has to be David's son. So he reminds Joseph, you are of the line of David. This child is of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21. It says this. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So she will because God will. And we're going to see that in a minute when we get into talking about God's providence. She will because God wills. Everything that God wills will come to play, will come to happen. And so He said, she will bear a son, very particular, isn't it? A son. You will call his name Jesus. What have we said in the past the name Jesus means? Savior. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be what? Saved from their sins. To call him Lord means he's boss. That's what it means to call Jesus Lord. You are the boss of me. And when we call him Lord and we call him Jesus, we are recognizing that he is saving us from what—ourselves, our sin. He will—you uh, will call his name Jesus—and it's very specific who he's come to save, isn't it? Who's Jesus come to save? Come to save sinners. But look what that says—he's come to save his people. He has a particular group of people in mind when he comes. Jesus said, "I am the good shepherd." I love my sheep and I lay my life down for my sheep. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And I can promise you this, on the last day, on Judgment Day, there's not one of his people that is not going to be saved. Think about the hope that we have in that. Nobody's slipping through the cracks. And guess what? If you're in this room today and you trusted him as Lord and Savior, it is a very clear indication That he died for you. That you are his people. Right? We say that in a familiar language today. That's my peeps. That's my people. But the reality is, the old song goes, I am proud to be a part of the family of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel along. Right? That's a good song. And it's talking about how we are his people. We are his family. And he loves us. And he died for his people. So he will save their people from their sins. Verse 22 says this. Let me say one more thing about that. If you're in this room today and you have never trusted him, but somewhere down in your heart, somewhere in your mind, you're struggling with the fact that you don't know him yet. It's probably a pretty good indication that he knows you and that he's calling you to stop living in doubt and unbelief and turn and trust him that you're his people. How do you know you're his people? You will repent and believe. That's how you you will know that you are a child of God. You will turn from sin and self and turn to his promise. That's how you know. All right, so, she will because God will. His name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. Uh, This, and look at verse 22, or it says, now all of this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets would be fulfilled. Why did all of these things take place? To fulfill what was spoken by who? The prophets? That's not what it said. What did it say? To fulfill all of the things that were spoken by the Lord through the prophets. When you pick up the Bible and you read Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah... Malachi, you are hearing God speak to you through these men. God spoke to us through the prophets. And I can tell you this. If you have no desire to hear from God's word, then you have no desire for God because that is the way that he speaks to us. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, clearly tells us that in times past he spoke to us in sundry ways and in diverse manner. In the past he spoke to Joseph through dreams. In the past he spoke to Moses through a burning bush. In the past he, past, he spoke to Jacob from a, a ladder coming down out of heaven. He spoke to people in different ways and in divers manners all throughout the Old Testament. But in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. And the way that he speaks to me and you now is through his word and through his truth. And there is another indication of a true child of God. A true child of God, a true sheep wants to hear from the shepherd. My sheep know my voice and they hear it and they follow. Okay? So, it says, all of this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets would be fulfilled. And then Matthew gives us an interesting example. And remember we talked about this last week uh, in the text, uh, this next verse, verse 23, uh, Jesus is not yelling at us. This is not a modern day text, right? This is the, that, those big letters are simply from the, the translation of the Bible I'm using and what it's making sure you and I understand is that this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. In the same way that many of you grew up reading the King James Bible with red letters and it had Jesus' words in red, Uh, this translation basically takes all of the Old Testament scriptures that were being used and puts them in all caps so that you can know that this is God's word. And then we're being reminded what? That God spoke through the prophets. And this prophet Isaiah said... 900, 800 years before Jesus was ever born, that a virgin will be with a child, she will bear a son, they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Anybody that tells you that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God has forgotten to read Isaiah. Amen. And they've forgotten to read the, the Gospels. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, he is God with us. You don't call anybody Lord who is not God. And those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And who is our Lord? Jesus Christ. He's God. And so all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Now, verse 24, we've already mentioned this. Joseph arose. He heard the word of God. He arose and he followed God's word. And he took Mary... To be his wife. Now, we need to remember that because in the next passage in Luke, we're going to see where it says they were yet to be married, but right here it's telling us that they were already married, all right, and we, we'll address that when we get to it, so that's the first uh, topic we're looking at, the final preparations in order for Jesus to be born, so now let's turn over to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and I promised uh, a couple people last week, I, I realized that because we had communion last week, I spoke entirely too long, and I know I'm going to do that again today, all right? I don't want to see folks nodding off. I want to make sure that everybody stays engaged. But we do need to get through this passage. It's very important. So we're going to talk now about the providence of God. Let's look at Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. And this is what it says. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all of the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone was going to be registered for the census, each in his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David. In order to be registered along with Mary, who was betrothed to him, she was with child now it happened that while they were there the days were fulfilled for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room Now again for the next couple of weeks after this we're going to continue to talk about the nativity the birth of Jesus and his early days the early life first couple of years of his life we'll continue on so I'm not going to I'm not skipping over the importance of the born in a manger and that story But we're going to only get to this text today where we see that Mary and Joseph have gone to Bethlehem. The baby has been born, and Mary has wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And I want to stop with that because we simply will not have enough time to get into all of the details. We'll start that next week. But I want to talk now about God's providence. And I'm going to share with you a definition of what I mean when I say God's providence. God's providence is the governance of God by which he... Through wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence assert that God is in complete control of everything. He is the sovereign over the universe as a whole. He is the king over the physical world. He is God over the affairs of the nations. He is the God over each and every one of our destinies. He is the God of human success and failure. He is the God that protects his people. His doctrine, this doctrine, this doctrine of providence stands in direct uh, opposition to to a world that is governed by chance and fate. All right? There's no such thing as luck. God's providence assures us that God is in control. Uh, an old theologian I used to love to read, I brought him up this morning Sunday school class, a guy named R.C. Sproul said, there's not a single radical molecule in the entire universe. What does that mean? Every atom of oxygen, hydrogen, and helium is in God's hands. Not one single molecule is outside of his control. And if you've been a part of our Sunday school class in the morning, we just learned this morning that because God is God, he does not change. And he, is, he does not have passions like we do. And that is wonderful to know that we have a God who is patient, who is merciful, who is long-suffering, who is in control. God is the sovereign of all of his creation. And so when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about the way that God governs and controls everything that happens. And that is a huge concept to swallow. Because we look around us and we see a world that seems to be falling apart. But one of the things that we've talked about in the past in here and one of the things we're going to see constantly throughout Scripture is that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can use the wrath and the wickedness of evil and sinful men to bring about His good, our good, and His glory. One of the worst acts that ever happened on the face of the earth and one of the best acts that ever happened on the face of the earth was wicked men nailing Jesus to a cross. But God took the wrath and the wickedness of those evil men and used it to bring about the salvation of all of his people. You see how that works? All of the brokenness of your past, all of the willful rejection of God that has brought you pain and suffering in your life, Everything that you have done contrary to the will of God, the things that you're seeing playing out in your kids' lives around you right now, the things that you're seeing playing out in the world around you right now, all of that. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, according to His providence. You see, we know that all things work together for good. It didn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. And we're seeing that playing out right here in this passage. In the same way that if you're in our Bible studies on Mondays, you'll know that Joseph, by hatred of his brothers, was sold into slavery and sent off to a place called Egypt. They lied to their dad and said he'd been killed by a wild animal. But the reality is, is that God used the wrath of Joseph's brothers to send him on ahead of them to prepare a safe haven for them so that one day they could be rescued from, from famine. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done too, isn't it? He's been sent ahead of us. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? He came to this earth and his own brothers hated him and nailed him to a tree. But it sent him on ahead to provide a salvation for all of his brothers, right? All of his sisters too, All right, so um, through divine providence, God is accomplishing his will to ensure that his purposes are fulfilled. God governs the affairs of men and works through the natural order of things. Even our laws of nature are God's laws. Right? We don't like God's laws, do we? we uh, the, the natural man hates God's law. We don't like to be told not to steal. We don't like to be told not to do this and do that, not to seek myself and my own desires. We don't like to be told those kind of things. But the reality is God said, if you don't keep my law, you will die. And that's a law. And the wages of sin is death, and that law is never going to change because God is the one that put it in place. That law is even more sure than gravity. And the law of gravity says that if you go stand on top of a 10-story building, even if you believe with all of your heart you can fly, if you jump off of there, you are going to die. And the reason you are going to die is because God placed a law in nature that says that gravity works every time. You see? And God's spiritual laws are just even more real. Well, they can't be more real. But the natural laws that God has in place are the same as the spiritual laws that God has in place. He always enforces them with his justice and his holiness. Yes. And we need to understand that. And so God in his providence is making sure that all things work out for our good and his glory. And if we hear that, then we need to do just what Joseph did and what? Arise and obey him and follow him. Just trust him that he is God and that his providence is good. So in Luke 1, we see Caesar, this earthly king. We see this census being taken. We would assume it's for tax purposes, right? One of the reasons they take census so they can know how many people going to be around that they can pay taxes, Right? I don't know if you know this or not, but the Roman Catholic Church, one of the main reasons that the Lutherans and the uh, Anglicans stopped with uh, infant baptism in the, during the time of the Reformation, because the churches were breaking away from infant baptism. Rome was still baptized, Iraq, but the churches in Germany were breaking away from it. Everybody was breaking away from, breaking away from infant baptism, and the German, church, the, the German church and state was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. If you don't bring them babies in to be baptized, we don't know how many people we got. They were using the baptismal rolls as their tax rolls. So they knew if somebody was born on January the 18th of 2000, that in two, January 18th of 2018, this guy was going to be around paying, needing to pay taxes, you see? And so, they, and so the government convinced the church, hey, you need to stick with this baptism thing. We need these records of these people. But this baptism or this census was probably taken for tax purposes This story is set in a secular context to remind us that God is the Lord over time and history, even the actions of non-believers in accomplishing his will. So God is using a non-believing king to call for a tax or to call for a census and calling for a people to go back to their hometowns. And that's not the usual thing. Like even back in that day, that was not the usual way that you took a census. Remember, David took a sense and said, what did he do? He sent Joab and all those guys out to go count all the people over the land. With this one, the people come to him to get counted. And what we find out is, is there actually are historical instances where, in, like in the nation of Egypt, where the Pharaoh called for all of the people to come to their hometowns to be counted. So it's, it's historically a uh, precedent in history, but it's not the usual thing. And so in this unprecedented or unusual event, God is making sure that Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem. And we'll see in a minute why. So it's a strange command. However, there are evidences of them doing something like this in history in the past. So in verse 4 and 5, we see that Joseph is of the family of David, that he is going to the city of Bethlehem. And then it says he is engaged or betrothed. Now, remember, in the Matthew passage that we just read, it said that they were married. Amen. But one of the things that we're pretty sure that Luke is doing here, Luke is a doctor, and that's what he did for living was a position. And one of the things that makes a wedding, a marriage official, is the consummation of the marriage. Yes. And so there is a major emphasis here that Joseph did not know Mary. He was betrothed to her and probably already married to her, but not married in the sense of the consummation of the marriage. Because Joseph can't have any credit for this baby being born. You see? And so we see that the marriage was... We we understand that to say that the marriage was not yet consummated. So, everything about the birth of Jesus in verse 6 and 7 says, she gave birth to a firstborn. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for an inn. It constantly points us to the fact of the poverty and the rejection of the obscurity of the birth of Jesus. That he, he's the king of kings. He hung he, he was clothed in humanity. And he humbled himself. He poured himself out for his people and became nothing. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't Pharaoh's kid like Moses was. He wasn't a a king, royal king in the sense that David had all of the armies and the the wealth and the temple and the the houses and all of the riches. Jesus came in poverty to identify with his people. And what's so beautiful about that is, is that when he comes to live in your heart, when he comes to give you a new heart and live within you, that's all he finds there is rejection. He finds a heart that is directly opposed to him and his love. It says the human heart is desperately wicked. Who could, who could know it? And Jesus comes and finds a man or a woman who is literally grinding their teeth and balling their fists and spitting in God's face with a hatred of a fallen man, of fallen nature. And God says, nope, I love you too much to let you come and continue that way. And he comes and abodes with us. He comes and identifies with us. And he comes and he saves us. He forgives us. He gives us a new heart. He fills us with his spirit and he makes us his children. And it's one of the most wonderful gifts ever. So we've seen that how God has used all of these historical, this historical narrative and all of these different wills of all of these different people and brought them together in one harmonious symphony to bring about the arrival of our king. So we've seen that we've seen these final preparations... We've seen God's providence at work. And now we'll end today's lesson uh, with the baby Jesus wrapping and swaddling clothes. Next week when we come back together, uh, we will continue to talk about the birth and, and the rest of the story. But to finish up, I want to remind you of this. We've seen God's preparations. We've seen the providence of God. And we need to remember that God always keeps his promises. And I want to show you that really quickly. So if you'll look with me. Um, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3.15. Genesis chapter 3.15 said, I will put a hatred and enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So all the way back in the garden, God told Eve, he said, because you have rejected me, cursed are you, and now in pain you're going to bring forth children, but I'm not going to leave you in that condition. You're going to suffer and you're going to have pain and you're going to hurt And you're going to have misery and sadness, but he's reminding the devil, he's saying one day that woman that you deceived is going to have a baby that's going to crush your head. And he not only says that, but he says it's the woman's seed. And that is so important for us to remember. Because every one of us in this room were born from the seed of a man, but in Genesis, the promise is that the woman seed will crush the serpent's head, all right? And then if we turn now to what we were studying today and look in Luke, what does it say, Luke 135? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason, the Holy Child will be the Son of God. There's the promised seed. It's taken all of those thousands of years. It's taken all kind of wickedness and all kind of crazy chaos in the world. But out of all of that chaos, all of that sin, all of that struggle, all of that destruction, God in his providence was working towards this moment where the child of God, the son of God, Jesus would be placed in the hands of a virgin, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And now that promise is being kept. Again, I want to hear a couple more passages, and we'll be done. And and uh, Micah, uh, Matthew one twenty three, it says this: "Behold, the virgin shall be with a child, and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God translated with us." If we turn back to Isaiah seven fourteen, and what do we see there? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. 800 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, saying what? The virgin will give birth to a child, and his name will be called Emmanuel. God keeps his promises. Last one, and then we'll be done. We won't do the John passage today, but Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 says this. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Alright? That is a quote from Micah 5.2. The prophet Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, said that out of Bethlehem, that sound familiar? In the land of Judea, the least among all of the leaders of Judah for out of you will come forth a ruler, and he will shepherd my people. So, why do you think it is that Caesar passed that census to be taken? Why do you think it is that Joseph and Mary had to get on a, uh, a ox, a beast of burden, and travel from where they were living in Nazareth to a place called Bethlehem? Because the Lord, speaking through the prophet Micah, said, This baby is... The king of kings and lord of lords, the son of the virgin, the son of David, the son of Abraham, will be born in Bethlehem. Amen. Amen. So, God keeps his promises. And what is required of us? To hear those promises, to receive those promises, to believe those promises, and walk in those promises. And my prayer for each and every one of you in this room is that you know that. That you received him, that you believed him, that you know him, that you are following him and you are walking with him. Remember what we said? The indications that I truly am a child of God is I love his word. I desire to hear from him. I am willing to share the forgiveness that he's given to me with others around me, even the ones that don't deserve it. And I'm willing to obey him and walk in his word. If you're here today and you know that, praise him for a gift of salvation. And if you are here today and you know that that's not any of those things are not talking about you, you don't care about his word, you don't follow him, and you've got a lot of hatred in your heart towards people that have hurt you, then repent. Turn away from those things and turn to his forgiveness. Turn to what he did on that cross for you, and he has never said no to anyone who turned to him and trusts him. Amen. Amen? Father, thank you for this word your truth, your word. And I pray that you will take these words and apply them to our hearts that we might not sin against you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.